Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. everyone welcome to another episode of really true fiction my name is luke mason and my name is david parker david i have a question for you (laughs) (laughs) i'm shocked (laughs) what could this question be (laughs) yeah 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 given that you're the resident political expert on this podcast uh my question is what is less functional the uh, ministry of magic or the canadian government Ooh. (laughs) Or, or uh, give me your first first um, blush uh, similarities and differences between the two. Well, I'm going to say that based on the danger that the Ministry of Magic is trying to uh, help uh, the world avoid, that perhaps the Ministry of Magic is more incompetent uh, <laughs> because they they're allowing something to to fester that could be much more deadly, especially to muggles like y- yourself and I. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> Without naming any names, have you ever come across a politician that you recognize from the portrayal of Cornelius Fudge in this book? I feel like a lot of politicians kind of match that. Oh, really? There's just no, oh, yeah. I mean, to some degree, and I was chatting with someone about this recently, it's uh, it's an interesting kind of person that decides to be a politician in the modern sure. era, right? Because... Yeah. You have to want to have power over other people and like prestige. And and it's actually interesting that this Goblet of Fire kind of reflects on this with Ron a bit. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But um, I think there are people who want to be recognized for what they believe they are, Mm -hmm. but they aren't necessarily what they believe they are. Or even if they were what they believe they are, maybe that's not what we actually need in leadership. (laughs) And I think we see a lot of that. And I think... This is obviously something that uh, Rowling understands quite well, and right. and she she's obviously um, perhaps more with children and as- adolescents, but just in general, a, a, has a deep understanding of human nature and and w- what's <laughs> important and what makes us tick and what is civilization. And I think her critiques of politics are are quite well met. <laughs> right. Yeah, my kind of like interfacing with with Fudge in this book and thinking about it is that like. Probably a lot of people get into politics or Ministry of Magicnesses with really good intentions and a desire and a public spirit and a real feeling of trying to help their communities and the, and their their constituents and things like that. But I feel like, especially as our culture in general has gotten more technocratic and bureaucratic, that there have been put in place selection pressures for the kind of people who actually make it to the very top. Yeah. Whether whether it be something like nepotism in a country's context that maybe rhymes with Manada, I don't know, or <laughs> the kind of people who get to the very and and like it's not just politics. I see it in 
nonprofits, charities, administrations of universities, like just the the kind of cohort of people that I have come across in my student life and professional life who are uh, running these things. There's something very Cornelius Fudge about them. Very, very like extreme, like almost overly pleasant. There's that great line in Infinite Jest where... uh, where David Foster Wallace is describing Uncle Charles, who is the bureaucrat's bureaucrat, who like manages to both be approaching and receding at the same time, (laughs) you know, and like has this kind of like very over the top, thus making it seem insincere or a saccharine form of pleasantness. And then the moment reality shows itself to be in conflict with their interests, you get a completely different person. Like something that you had never seen before. And unless you have experience with these extremely talented administrators, you're never going to see until that, right? Like it's, it's just, it's an interesting and it's hard to talk about without seeming insulting or like judgmental. The thing is a lot of these people that I've come across who I've seen these tendencies of are people that I actually like. Do you know what I mean? Like I think that they do have really solid moral fibers in like many other arenas of their life, whether it be their family or their friends, the meat and potatoes of ethical life. These people excel in, you know, <laughs> in yeah. in all these other realms. So I I think I do think it is very much interesting to talk about the selection pressures that make the Cornelius fudges of the world and also what it is in them that make that that are able to do that. But I thought it was funny. Goblet of Fire, yes, in case you haven't (laughs) discovered, we're talking about the fourth book, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, continuing our Harry Potter series. This book being the introduction, not like literally the introduction, but certainly the uh, beginning to really get into the Ministry of Magic and how it interacts with Hogwarts and Dumbledore and then the kids and everything, so... Well, this is the the first Harry Potter book that really expands uh, our understanding that, uh, you know, the wizarding world is more than just the localized world of the children, right? Yeah. And I believe, I'm trying to remember, but I think this is kind of the first time that we get outside of Harry's perspective commonly, like that, that we're no longer just kind of, we're no longer in the first person narrative, or I guess it would be second person narrative. The focal point of everything is no longer Harry, even though mm-hmm. he's obviously uh, continues to be the main character. We've kind of e- expanded our perspective to a much wider view of everything that's going on. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's a really good theme for this particular book, considering a lot of Harry's experiences, especially in the first third of it. So, yes, if you haven't listened to Philosopher's Stone or Chamber of Secrets or Prisoner of Azkaban episodes, I recommend you listen to those first because... Obviously, like J.K. Rowling wrote these books to be sequential and experienced that way, which you can tell, and it's a really great feature of the novels. I think you'll get more out of listening to those ones before this one because they (laughs) compound on each other. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. But just before we talk about it, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listens to Really True Fiction. You can find the podcast on all podcasting apps of your choice um you can send us an email at reallytruefiction@gmail.com at gmail.com if you have any comments concerns praises or blames 
or whatever <laughs> or you just want to chat about the things we're discussing yeah exactly we love the feedback and the interaction it's one of the best parts of making this podcast as well as we have a facebook group really true fiction you can join and um we post new episodes there as well as on the podcast apps so david since you read this book much more recently than i have <laughs> Do yes, you want to just true. give us a, a quick true. plot rundown for everyone who hasn't read Goblet of Fire in the last, I don't know, number of years? <laughs> well, I mean, this is a, this is a long book, right? So um, it's like, it's like, I think Prisoner of Azkaban is like 300 or so pages. And this one in the one I read got up to 700. So yeah, so a lot, a lot happens. Uh, but the basic plot is that uh it seems we're we're often introduced to Harry, where you know it's the start of the school year. It's this seems to be the theme of of uh, Harry Potter. We before he gets to go to school, we have some adventures that begin, and uh, in this particular case, he's going to the World Quidditch Cup, which mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of his introduction to the international world of wizarding. Like we've we've been introduced to kind of the UK world of wizarding, and um, and this is his first introduction to that. And immediately we're thrown into a much more adult world than we have been in the past. For example, uh, we encounter the Death Eaters right at the at the at the Wizarding Cup, and yeah. and also we're introduced to this re- new relationship that was established in the last book between Harry and Sirius, who is acting like a, a parental figure. And we talked about that in our Prisoner of Azkaban ep- episode. But I think it's it's interesting uh, how well. Uh, Rowling understands like the psychology of what it's like to be uh, a adolescent and a child and the need for those that guidance and the, and the need for someone who cares and like good parenting being, you know, criticism, but warmth and, you know, loving unconditionally, but having a high expectations. Mm-hmm. Right. And this definitely seems to be what what Sirius is doing. So these relationships are kind of intertwined. So we return to Hogwarts and we have uh, our introduction to Moody, who is uh, the new professor of the dark arts. This, you know, kind of cursed defense against the dark arts, defense against the dark arts. Sorry. Yeah. Which, again, is a is a misdirection. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, and it seems that this this position is obviously cursed. But this time, we we encountered this guy who's been been hunting dark wizards for a long time. He's he's considered very powerful. Harry is a, very impressed by him, and almost a, makes him equivalent in his eyes, not maybe in sta- in in relationship, but in stature to Dumbledore. Yeah, there's a competence around moody and dumbledore that makes them able to be kind it seems right and they, they don't they, they're confident so they don't have to be they're not insecure and they're not they're not testing themselves against each other they're they're dealing with bigger issues so as he arrives then we're introduced to the you know the quidditch cup is going to be canceled because we're having this gigantic new tournament between three schools and this is exciting it's not going to be Quidditch. It's going to be these champions, you know, fighting for the honor of their respective schools. Yeah. In the meantime, sorry, I should have said at the beginning, we're introduced to, to Voldemort is engaging more freely in the world. And he, he's just become a bigger character. And Harry's having visions of what yeah, Voldemort having visions sees. Of him, and these visions are impacting Harry's scar. And so we're, you know, laid out to the connection between them even further. I think this is the first time we like on page or on screen in the case of the movie, but on page see a murder. 
like an yeah. actual somebody's right. killed. So it's kind of indicated that that Voldemort's got a plan, but we don't really know what the plan is. And that's why Harry's going to serious about the, these things, right? So mm. as the challenges present themselves, we see some interesting interpersonal dynamics between Ron and Hermione. And Harry asks, you know, the Goblet of Fire just spits out Harry's name, even though he's too young and he shouldn't <laughs> be allowed. This alienates him from a lot of people. Yeah, uh, and and creates this sense that I think a lot of people have when they're young of alienation, but it, but it's really well played out in this because it's uh, it's the people that Harry wants to believe him the most that kind of turn on him, but they don't turn on him because of him; they turn on them because of themselves, particularly in the case of of Ron. And so we're introduced to these challenges in which Harry goes into the first challenge with the dragons and is, you know, this is a really cool theme that gets brought out in this book a lot, but that Terry's always the underdog, right? But that's kind of why people love him. Mm -hmm. And like, there's this concept of people are willing to help the underdog because it says something about them. So Hagrid really puts a lot of faith in Harry being the guy who, you know, hard work and good character are going to pay off and he's going to be victorious in this, in this match. Hermione helps him a lot with figuring out the dragons and how they're going to deal with that. And then, you know, Dobie um, helps him be able to get through the mer the Mer one. And yeah. it's a lot of the themes of this. And then obviously it would be remiss to not say that, you know, we're introduced to a Harry who's interested in women for basically <laughs> the first time. And so there's, yeah. you know, all this which of course is like and, when you're 14 and the, um, oh, and you're awkward yeah. and, <laughs> and, and you're like stumbling over your words and who hasn't, you know, been yeah. through those circumstances. Uh, some of us never, never get past that stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true true (laughs) so all of that so there's like there's these kind of three underlying themes right there's the what's going on with Voldemort yeah then there's the interpersonal tensions that are you know Ron and Hermione are going through attraction to one another but not really I'll also say include in the book and it's not in the movie um Hermione's campaign to kind of liberate the house elves which I think is a super important part of the book Oh, I, well, yeah, because I of Hermione's character part of the, development of the series, really, right? Because yeah. it, it says a lot about Hermione. Uh, I was going to go into that with the Dobie stuff and mm. and what. So, so then yeah. Dobie, Dobie is uh, such a important. Just, just so you know, David, uh, people call him Dobby. <laughs> oh, you'll get so um, reading it wrong, Dobby. You'll get uh, you'll get flamed. <laughs> you're gonna get lambasted by the fans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've only read. <laughs> I think uh, I think Adobe would be software. Right. Dobby. So Dobby, I apologize. No, it's okay. (laughs) So Dobby, you know, I've I've always liked him as a character. Well, so this is my first read through of the whole series, right? Right. So I haven't, I really enjoyed the house elf thing because actually I hadn't really remembered it for some reason or it hadn't played a big role in my mind when I was watching the movies. And Hermione, it's so such a Hermione thing, right? She's so... She's concerned with the intellectual aspects of things. But one of the things I loved about this is it talks a lot about male female friendship right like yeah. Hermione's the one that that continues to believe in Harry through this whole time mm-hmm. and it isn't about romance and it isn't about relationship it's just about friendship and the and the richness of those relationships so it makes sense that you know well and 
we won't really talk about it until we get to Deathly Hallows, but I've told you before that um, I think probably a, a very strong case can be made that uh, Hermione is the actual hero of the Harry Potter series. Yes. Uh, even yes, more than Harry is, or, or they're co-heroes or something like that. Yeah. So this this is, you certainly see the, um, this goes back to how great of a writer and a storyteller Rowling is, is how how much of the uh, seeds of that character portrayal in Deathly Hallows are sown here with Hermione in a book like this. Yeah, and and we're, her character is really brought out in this also, you know, her, and it's so cool because this really does attest to just the master craft craftsmanship of Rowling because she's able to go into like things like how Hermione feels about her teeth right and how that plays a role in her self-image but then go out into like these broader societal questions about slavery and and you know value for work and why are people stuck in these why are the elves the house elves stuck in this way of living and it's a very talented writer that can go on the in and out like that and then like and then reflect on the awkwardness of, te- of being a teenage boy and then on, you know, the sacrifice of Diggory and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's, I don't know. I thought this was probably the best book so far. Uh, so anyway, they, they go through the challenges. They go into the, there's the, uh, the Murr challenge or like where they have to free the hostages. Yeah. And, you know, we get more of an example of how friendship is what's most important. You know, <laughs> you know, you, this is yeah. becoming an underlying theme. <laughs> friendship was the true hero all along. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then we go into the, uh, to the maze, uh, which is the final test of the. Triwizard tournament. Yeah, the Triwizard tournament. I, th- I was saying Tri-Cup. But it's Triwizard Tournament, yes. So then the Triwizard Tournament, the final phase is the maze. And obviously we have Voldemort, as he always does, playing his roles at the end of these things. Tricky, tricky Voldemort. (laughs) The cup ends up being a key that transports him to a graveyard where, again, Harry must confront ultimate evil. And he avoids seemingly certain death by the love of people in his life <laughs> after death. Yes. Uh, he then returns. We find out Moody's not really Moody. He's a, uh, he's again, another plant of Voldemort's this, this, you know, defense against the dark arts position seems to be really a cursed, revolving I door, a revolving door of Voldemort's plants. You think they get a little <laughs> bit better, but no, they, they keep just, assuming that yeah. everything's good you know snape uh, where we learn more about snape and dumbledore through these cool you know i guess i'd call them little narrative uh, tricks that rowling does where she has these magical devices that l- allow harry to look into the past to moments where he wasn't but then we get more of the story uh, it's just an, another way of of showing us what's happened in the world that I that I enjoyed yeah. quite a lot. See, there's so much going on in this book. I forgot the the Yule Ball, which was probably one of my favorite yeah, parts. Yeah, yeah. Where, just, where, where Ron and Harry end up in a situation where no one will go with them, and then Ron like uh, like says, "Oh, Hermione, you're a girl." Like at the very end, and <laughs> and there's <laughs> yeah, but that that was all. Uh, it's just enjoyable. Like that's just yeah. I think that is the kind of stuff that made this children adore these books so much and just gets so attached to them yeah because it was the the emotional resonance of you know of a life 
Mm-hmm. These are experiences that a lot, if not most people have been through of, of you know, attraction, rejection, right. fear of being ostracized, that kind of thing. Even though it's been a while, a lot of listeners will remember and probably remember the first time they read Goblet of Fire. Because I think it was in the first episode of Harry Potter, we talked about how what's so great about these books is that there manages to be two stories going on at the same time, at least two. Yes. But always like mm-hmm. the specific book itself has a narrative arc and... The book itself also contributes to the seven book arc of the Harry versus Voldemort element of it yes. all, even though there's kind of all these mini villains and mini trials and things going on in every individual book. And I think what was really cool about Goblet of Fire is that even though the, the previous three books had their own internal adventure, this one was just kind of bigger, darker, more expansive, right? This was, this felt like the first adult novel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Not yeah, adult, exactly. But young adult, like... The other ones are 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 like more C.S. Lewis, and this is like yeah. edging into world building. Sure, yeah, right. So like, and like that's nothing that against the earlier books or against C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I admire the both, but now we've. But this is the coolest part of the Harry Potter series in my mind, and it's so ingrained in people's psyche because they people grew up with this. Yeah, like there's a generation of people that they aged with this story, and therefore the emotions that they like a lot of the values and things that they were taught through these books, which I want to get into later are like core to who they are. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And I think that's a really good like beginning segue into one of the very first things I noticed when reading this and it's appropriate given that Harry's 14. So like, that's kind of like when you're supposed to start thinking a little bit more expansively because I wasn't 14 when this happened I was 15, but maybe I've told this story before. I know I've told it on my other podcast where the first time I ever went to Romania, this story is in relation to, there's a line in the book when they go to the Quidditch World Cup and it's Rowling describing Harry and it's, he hadn't thought much about those in other countries before. (laughs) When your mind expands a little bit more to the world. And when I was 15, I got to go to Romania with my mom and some people and lots of cool things happened. I could talk about it for a long time, but I remember the contrast between how excited all of the kind of kids in the orphanage were when we brought them a $5 rubber soccer ball that was like really shitty, but it was like a brand new toy and they didn't even have good, like didn't have grass. They were either playing in like overgrown lawns or cement or dirt. And so like seeing the joy of those people versus like when I came back to Canada, all of the guys on my soccer team complaining about the blisters, their $250 brand new cleats were giving them kind kind of thing. Like <laughs> that disjunct is a very seminal moment in my growth, you know, both psychologically and philosophically, I would say. And so I just wanted to note that one of the great things that happens in a young person's life uh, as they grow is like, oh, yeah, I guess there are people in Nairobi who are living their lives. Oh yeah, I guess there are people in Prague living their lives that have nothing to do to me. And then you can even extend that further to like, oh yeah, there was a Roman Empire with people who lived lives that were important to them in the way that my life is important to me. You know, pick any point in history, pick any geographical location. That's one of the, it gets thrown into slogans and cliches like travel opens your world kind of thing. You can get glassy eyed and gloss over it a bit, but that kind of, it doesn't even necessarily need to be travel, like books do this too, but it's that stage in life 
which is so crucial pedagogically when you can start to expand your mind into other places, other times, other people who have existences to them that are just as important as ex your existences to you, presumably. It's that beginning first major hit against solipsism, which I think is such a crucial part of living a good life. So I just loved that, that was one of the first big themes of this book. It was the World Cup, Quidditch World Cup and his expanding in that way, in a way that was reminiscent of something in my life when I was around that age too. I don't know, do you have yeah. any like memory or story of the first time that kind of feeling happened to you? I guess it kind of needed to happen more. I think we all all do to some degree, right? It in is continual sense, and perennial. That's a continuous thing. I think a lot of misery in life, I would say, comes from not doing enough of that and becoming too myopic and, and starting to like look at your own life. And, and we've talked about this a lot, but comparing yourself to others and, and, and yeah. that kind of thing, but not comparing yourself to others in the, in the way that you described, but instead, you know, negatively comparing yourself to others and, and allowing, you know, your unique sufferings and perhaps you know trials to become bigger than than they are like you like you said allowing those blisters <laughs> to uh to become like yeah. such a big deal when the someone, focus of your attention yeah that your attention when the you know the soccer ball can bring joy for me i think the first real encounter i had with realizing that the world was a was a lot bigger and that people were just living their lives came a lot later. I was pretty, pretty obsessed with my own world, even though I, I went to Africa and spent time in, in Kenya, actually three weeks. And, and that was a very interesting time, but it was, I've always, because I think when we've talked about this before, I had this, you know, maybe delusions of grandeur is a good word or just <laughs> belief in my own greatness and right. a me messianic complex, whatever you want to call it. I think for me, it was it was coming to the realization that people can believe things as firmly as I can, right? right. So it was, I, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but it was my encounter with my Muslim friend, uh, Rami, and, and realizing that he had a very beautiful and strong and complex faith that was like antithetical to what um, perhaps I believed or had been told about things. That Certainly very, like logically incongruent well, it. well it's like you said where it's like there are people whose you know lie existence are presumably as, as important to them as ours are to ourselves yeah and i think like despite the fact that i read a lot like tons by over the years i think by not allowing my my mind to open to the point and, it, and it's interesting because i want to get into it i think this applies a lot to goblet of fire because despite like his mind kind of opening it's interesting how like human these this book is and that like the concerns mm. of the characters are still you know arguably petty in the light of Voldemort trying to destroy the world and yet they're so important to them yeah right like Ron's newfound fame after the the Mer Kingdom's you know situation and and how he plays it up and it, it's <laughs> it's his first taste of you know people admiring him whereas harry gets it all the time and doesn't like it or you know how hermione reacts to suddenly being very attractive and, and getting a lot of male attention right and right. i guess i would say i i don't if i'm being really honest uh i had i haven't had enough of that, those moments i need more mm. of them because i think a lot of misery comes from it. but my first like oh the world is way bigger than i than i could have possibly thought it was 
uh, was actually when I was 15 going to Montreal. Yeah. And uh, just spending a few days with some people, friends of my dad's brother, walking around the city, really enjoying each other's company and engaging with one another. But that was the first time that I'd been to Quebec. It was the first time that I'd basically been outside of Alberta or Ontario. Like we lived in Hawaii when I was really young, but I hadn't gone anywhere else Mm -hmm. in my life besides, well, visiting you guys in BC, right? But my life was very small, homeschooled, church, and to just be thrown into a city by myself and really just get to experience a new culture with new people and realize how much more there is out there it would probably yeah. be that that moment yeah, yeah, yeah. which that was really sense. a bonding moment with this person that i spent that weekend with and haven't talked to really since but uh, right <laughs> yeah it was uh i think that would be the first time yeah for yeah. me that would be my first awareness of a world that that didn't you know let's say a a planet that didn't revolve around the sun of my parents and their ideas right and i think Again, pedagogically, it's very appropriate that it is around that like 13, 14, 15. Yeah, age I was 15. When, so exactly. When yeah. uh, young people are kind of um, mentally equipped now to, to start considering those much more abstract notions that, again, if you travel, they become visceral, thus easier to kind of <laughs> internalize and think about. But you're right also that it is a perennial thing. Like solipsism doesn't go away once you travel once, you know, like, no, like no, David Foster Wallace like, oh, says, the, the world is around <laughs> us. We experience it always happening to me. Everything is around me beside me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like not to get too navel gazy about this kind of thing, but I think one of the best ways to kind of perpetually or at least in a routine sense help yourself with that is reading novels yes or or experiencing stories like again i don't want to make it about our podcast per se although that is one of the motivating factors is that it kind of by doing more episodes it handcuffs us to continually leaving that solipsistic stance to think about these stories and to you know, presage uh, a future episode. I just finished reading for the third time Brothers Karamazov and just the amount of um, in-depth thinking about what's going on in both the social and psychological settings of mid to late 19th century Russia. Like there's just no way other than reading a novel like that, that I'm going to have an easy access into thinking like, I wonder what the late 19th century was like for Russian uh, middle yeah. aristocrats. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you're not going to know. But once you read that book, you just kind of have that extra layer of context. The philosopher Richard Rorty would say, you've added some elements to your vocabulary to describe the context of your life by reading uh, a novel like that, right? Yeah. So I think this is off topic, but Rorty talks about, I really like reading Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity says if people have more expansive vocabulary than others that could be potentially because they've just contextualized it more by having different thinkers firsthand knowledge of those thinkers by reading their books that kind of thing yeah and so um yeah i think that's like one of the higher order almost pro-social aspects of reading novels is uh, they contextualize your own life more by placing you more sophisticatedly in the sequence of time and space, right? Well, and we've talked about like that is maybe one of the greatest gifts that Rowling gave, I mean, arguably humanity was 
those these stories were the portal for a lot of people into the world of literature made them love reading and (laughs) and and you know i i don't think we 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 need to talk about this too much but i mean is there a greater joy in life and stories i i don't think so yeah no before i even thought about this podcast it was motivated by the kind of like um latent but ever-present subconscious notion that fiction is one of the strongest higher order pleasures in life for almost everyone right yeah if you think about how much movies and tv gets consumed by people and even a low budget movie with a really great story is a great movie so yeah you'll get a kick out of this but i saw on the internet the other day somebody showed a picture of like the very first ever publication of the first book so i think it was like 97 maybe and uh it's philosopher's stone and there's a blurb on the back of the book so none of the other books have been published yet no other movies we're still in like the infant infantine days of uh, harry potter the review of the first book says rowling has captured something magical here in the 2020s 30 somethings will be discussing what these books have meant to them (laughs) 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 it's like that's so funny because like that's true of even people who weren't allowed to read these books when we were kids right like like us (laughs) but i mean there's no there's arguably other than the lord of the rings movies there's no kind of pop culture icon that i think was as emblematic of the millennial generation as harry potter was no there's no nothing nothing there was something you mentioned earlier that i really was i i I think it is in line with one of my other notes about harry that i wanted to bring up so you talked about how even though there's like these grand adventures going on and these massive plot machinations so much of the story emotional core is resonant around ron hermione and harry and the way that they kind of interact not only with each other but with the people around them there's the great part of the book when harry has learned what the first task is going to be in the triwizard tournament uh it's the dragons hagrid has told him and for no reason it seems to me other than his kind of like conscience or his sense of the unfairness of this knowledge Um, that Cedric doesn't have, he tells Cedric, right? Like he lets Cedric know in so many words that it's going to be dragons, heads up. And then this is also like the kind of thing that allows Cedric to, you know, quid pro quo. Cedric gives him the tip of taking a bath with the egg. egg. So like it goes, I guess there's two things because this kind of grows and this is part of the Harry Potter ethos that I think is relevant to real life is like, to me, this is karma in action. This is karma as a psychological feature, not a not a metaphysical one, right? Yeah, this is the infinite game, right? When you put yourself out there in a way that is kind to other people, like well, I think so. Point one is, I think when people talk about karma, they're not talking about pure nonsense, right? I just don't think it's a metaphysical thing. I think it's like the way you live, right? Like the Bible says, you reap what you sow. A more kind mm-hmm. of like lower key version of this is like. If you tell Cedric about the dragons, maybe he'll tell you about the egg. It's just, it's a more pro-social. Oh, yeah. I think this is like the, a fundamental point. So, yeah. so that so that, that's the social element of, let's say, karma. But more specific to Harry is Harry is so laudable because he always has these little pricks of conscience in every book almost all the time where it's like, no one will know if he does or doesn't do this thing. There's no judge external judge of him one way or the other for this 
Hagrid's probably not going to tell anyone that he told Harry, right? Like, there's no real reason to, because it's probably not a good idea that Hagrid told him from Hagrid's interests <laughs> and what people will think of him. There's just these, like, little things where I don't need to tell anyone about this because no one will know, but I, I, I know I will probably have more peace of mind. I will be able to... This will eat away at my conscience if I don't tell this person, right? Like there's something in the moral equilibrium of the world that I need to devote this fairness to someone, right? We, I don't know, in more technical terms, we call it fair warning or informed consent or full disclosure, things like this. These are We have some turns of phrase for this kind of thing. But that was something that so caught my eye on that specific part. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of that in, in relation to Harry Potter slash life. Yeah, it's also interesting to me that a lot later on, Dumbledore talks about how everyone cheats in the Triwizard Tournament, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and that that's a part of like, it's almost a part of the tradition and it's yeah. not. It's like in baseball, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. <laughs> yeah, like um, it's, it's a very, uh, I don't know. That is a weird part of this world that that I I like your thoughts on, but but going back to your point, which I think is is important. Never before in reading Rowling have I been struck by how clearly she's trying to create a system of values. Yeah. In this book, it becomes very clear that it's like no. And the best way to create them is to demonstrate the story. Right. And yeah, your story. Right? It's it's like right? it'd be one thing to have a philosophical treatise on. On these why values is important, but, but when when they're embodied, they get below that level, that rational level you talk about sometimes. Yes, exactly. And so when she's walking through, like she she Harry's always making it seems like basically the right decisions, which is what makes him kind of a you know an archetype as opposed to a you know a let's an antihero or like a, or a realistic hero. But he's doing it in such a way. That anybody could. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I what I love about it. It's like he's not, even though he is, you know, the chosen one and, and you know, the, you know, and he's connected to the, the dark force and all this stuff, how he's portrayed is no, it's these, it's these little choices that when you make the right choice will down the line benefit you. Whereas if you don't make the right choice, you're going to suffer the consequences. Right. She even builds it up through this book so well, right? Because there's the little challenges that he faces that by, you know, excelling at those little challenges and and, and working through them and, you know, putting his head down and figuring them out, that gives him the confidence for the larger challenges that he faces along the way. And it, it's like every book is follows this arc, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, puzzles or challenges or or things that problems. he's learned you know they they i mean it's it's really good storytelling in that sense right is that the problems that he faces earlier provide him with the education and tools to deal with the problems that he faces further along the line that happens book to book i think it's hermione tells him or or someone who tells him that well make it like quidditch fly yes fly against the dragons because that's something you're really good at like there's some i even made a note like that's kind of like a almost cognitive behavioral therapy element going on here is like meet your thing in chunks right well yeah you're not good at dragons but you're good at flying so take them on on a broom not on and and we know that from previous books i think that augments your point yeah I i think the what is the philosophy of the world that's being presented here like it's that 
your capacity to deal with things is going to be directly correlated to how you've approached other things. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of conscience, like you're pointing out here, your relationship with other people of quality is going to be dictated by how you treat them. Yeah. And so Diggory is obviously a, a person of quality and like Cedric. Diggory's Cedric. his last name. Yeah. I sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to keep <laughs> you I'm safe from the fans. As, as not a not being uh, that I wasn't allowed to read them when I'm young because I'm <laughs> I'm just sitting here in isolation reading them. I'm trying to shield Cedric. you from the fires of the fans. <laughs> so Cedric <laughs> he ends up being, you know, the kind of person who can stand up against evil even though it is the his end. Mm-hmm. And, but he's also a person of character, right? Like they decide they're going to share the victory because they both helped each other through the challenge. He feels a debt to Harry for helping him. So he helps Harry, right? He has a sense of fairness and, and karma and things in the world. Yeah. And none of this would have happened if if Harry had been like clinging to his own idea of his own greatness and yeah. didn't want help and wanted to do it by himself. Like, Harry intrinsically knows, which obviously shows us that Rowling knows, that the universe is, has immutable laws. And one of them is like, is you reap what you sow. Yeah. And I mean, I think one of the things that really maybe doesn't separate Harry from other characters in the book, but is isolated in Harry and described really well to make the point thorough is that Harry does these things pre-rationally. He thinks about what's kind of the right thing to do, and it's like an instinct almost as much as it is a reflection for him. So like in that scene when he's swimming and he sees all the people and the mer people are around, his instinct is to save everybody, not just his thing. Uh, he gets bonus points from that activity for showing great moral fiber, the irony being if he tried to show great moral fiber, he couldn't. Right? Yeah. Like if he was yeah. doing it with the intention of impressing the judges and Dumbledore to do it, they would see through that. So there's um there's kind of a sincerity in his world outlook that isn't like it's not like he can't think about the right thing to do. He often does. It's one of the great things about Harry Potter books is the moral deliberation that goes on in the heads of our of the kids and, and the young and the students. But also that he doesn't waste any time calculating the costs and benefits of rescuing someone or telling Cedric. Like, my re recollection of the book is that when Harry is wrestling with telling Cedric about the dragons, he doesn't think about how it will benefit him later. Like, that just doesn't enter into his stream of consciousness. He's wrestling with how this knowledge, this extra knowledge makes him feel. Right. Right. Which makes him feel kind of dirty. Like he, yeah. And I think a more real life correlate to this kind of thing is like in a job, how do you feel when you have knowledge that's going to affect another person's job experience or employment, but they haven't been told yet? Right. Yeah. Like you just have an unequal amount of knowledge about something. And my experience has been that's an extremely uncomfortable feeling. I hate it. I really don't like having excess knowledge about someone else's fate in a way that they don't have, that feels icky to me. And so when Harry struggles with that kind of thing in the book, I feel a kindred psychology, I suppose, on those kind of things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I, I mean, 
that's the beauty of it. It's educating someone on saying, hey, pay attention to this feeling. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to this way of thinking. Yeah. And what's drawn out is like the bad characters, the character or and the bad qualities and the good characters are always tied to when they ignore those things or they allow things like insecurity or uh, fear to kind of rule them. Right. Yeah. I, I knew that she was doing this and you can, I mean, it, sometimes it's a little bit like on, you know, on, <laughs> she hits the nail on the head to. <laughs> Again, this book was written to be read by 14 year olds. And that's what I mean. But <laughs> I think I'd never have admired what she was doing so much as I, as I did in this book when I was reading this book. Sure. And I think the social element of it, this gets so cashed out. I don't know if this was on purpose by Rowling or not, but like because Harry and Cedric realize that they can share the cup because they kind of have equally deserved it based on helping each other out of things. Well, and even I, I, I don't think it's like this in the book, but in the movie, Cedric tells Harry to go get it. And Harry says, no, we'll get it together kind of thing. Or maybe it's the other way around. I can't remember. It's the, the movie version is a little different from the book version on this particular point. But they share it and, and it like it's okay, yeah, like there is a way of living with other people that is non-zero sum, right? Like we can all benefit if we give good natured reciprocity a chance. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like uh or yeah. good or good faith, good good willed. And there's even like I mean, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but there are studies in the lab of like what is the most sustainable form of relationship with people you don't know or or you are associated with or are colleagues with, or maybe not close communal friends with. And uh, the simulation goes, the best way to do it is to initiate a kindness and then respond in kind to what they do back to you ad infinitum. So if you initiate a kindness and then they respond by taking advantage of you, well, then you take advantage back. And that quickly dissolves, right? Like you just don't have yeah. a relationship with that. But the simulation that goes on the longest is the one that initiates a kindness and does tit for tat, whereas it's always a kindness back. Unsurprisingly, it reminds me of a line from a Jimmy World song, because the song is about a relationship that's on the rocks and how to deal with it. And the Jim Adkins sings, if we both step up to own it, I'll take what's coming first. Among equals, I'll do the hard thing first, or I'll do the nice thing first, because I it extends trust into the relationship. Yeah, And yeah. Um, that, I think, motif is portrayed so well in Harry and Cedric's relationship because even though Cedric is a little bit older than Harry there is a kind of equality blossoming between the two of them before the tragedy of Hedrick of Cedric's demise that I think is illuminative of really high level reciprocity between good faith actors yeah like you said, it's one thing for us to know this on a philosophic level. And then when it's played out in front of us in beloved characters, I think if you ask people who, who read these books growing up, these moments will pop into their heads all throughout their life. Yeah, for sure. The end of that scene reminded me a little bit of Hank from Atlas Shrugged, or Harry did, I suppose, because, you know, there's that part where he's caught, they're in the graveyard. I can't remember. He's like bound by that statue in the movie. Anyway, I don't remember exactly how he's bound in the book. And and Voldemort tries to get him to admit things and Harry won't, right? Like Harry won't cry for his life or beg for it or anything like that. And it reminded me of Hank and Atlas Shrugged who won't admit to the government uh, yes. what yeah. they want him to, right? You can steal from me, 
but you can't make me thank you for stealing from me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It kind of goes back to the, what I was, what I was saying a little bit earlier that I, uh, this is just a, a thing I've been thinking about a lot and as with all good literature, you know, reading this story plays a role in that, you know, it, it, or it highlights a piece of that, but it's this idea of, you know, Harry can't control what Voldemort's doing and he can't control the fact that he, that his life keeps getting interrupted and, and, and crushed by this, you know, evil that keeps making appearances in his, <laughs> from the very beginning. Yeah. But he can control how he responds to it mm-hmm. and does so well. And it's interesting. Uh, I'm, for some reason, the name of the spell is it's the spell that makes um, the, the Death Eaters, you know, obey Voldemort. What's it called again? Oh, the, I, uh, I don't remember. <laughs> you know, but there's the three yeah, yeah, spells yeah. that Moody teaches. And there's the one that that basically brainwashes people and right. makes them do what? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, I'm sure uh, someone will write in to... and remind us. Yes, <laughs> but um, it's interesting that that doesn't work on Harry. Hmm. Yeah. Right. When Moody does it, it doesn't really, it doesn't fully work. And when Voldemort tr- does it, it doesn't work at all because he's figured out how to overcome it. I don't know. I think that, <laughs> I think that has a lot. And it's interesting because there's a whole media angle to this book and talking about the media and what it does to people and gossip and things like that. But it's interesting that one of the parts of the hero's journey in Goblet of Fire is how the hero learns not to be brainwashed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, oh, the yeah. hero learns not to be controlled by people, despite their how powerful they are and the overwhelming methods they're using. Part of the education, literally the defense against the dark arts, let's say, is learning how to be the master of your own mind. Yeah, well, and I mean that's a that's a recurring thought from even the first book, where it's only, as far as I can remember, it's only Harry and Dumbledore who'll even say Voldemort, right? Who yes. even say his name? Yeah. Like everyone is even too scared to call it by its rightful name, kind of thing. And so that's of a piece of that, I think, in the crafting of the story is that, yeah, Harry, um, you can imprison me, but you can't. What's that line? I can't remember who said it. There's some dissident in some 20th century dictatorship that wrote, um, I will die, but that is all I will do for death. <laughs> I haven't heard that and one. It, but and I it was like in it. response to like not betraying some other group of dissidents or like cashing it, like giving a confession, a false confession to save himself or to like throw other people under the bus other under the bus. So yeah, Harry was like, You can kill me, Voldemort, but that is all I will do for you. Right? Yeah. That kind of yeah. thing. And I think that there's something really powerful in that psychology. Um, did you have anything else about Harry? Because that's all I have of notes of him. No, I don't have anything else about him. All right, well, why don't we uh, talk about Dumbledore a little bit in this book? Okay, so here's the first line that isn't specifically about Dumbledore, but he says it. And I think it's um, a useful observation of some of the elements of our culture today. So he's talking to Hagrid, right? He says to Hagrid, really Hagrid, if you are holding out for universal popularity, I'm afraid you'll be in this cabin for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about this a little bit. Because of the internet and social media now and the way our brains are wired, I think that there's a disproportion between when you experience a case, whether it's a video or a blog or a testimony, 
to easily outsize it to how representative it is of the world in general. Like I, I just, mm-hmm. I just read Rationality, Stephen Pinker's new book, and he talks in there a little bit about the uh, availability and familiarity heuristic or bias, which is like the easier it is to call to mind a particular case, the easier it is to think that case is bigger in the world than it is. Um, right. So that's it's why people are more scared of flying than driving kind of thing, right? right. Like right. Um, even though there are thousands more car crashes a year than there are plane crashes, plane crashes are basically 100% fatal and they make big news because airplanes are big fucking machines, right? <laughs> like that, well, that kind of thing. It's also like a rarer event. It's a yeah. more like... If you're, if you're reported on every, well, they do report on a lot of car accidents, but if you're, you know, if it became a big idea, well, deal if you every reported every accident. fender bender or every time a car hit another car, like, yeah, yeah, it'd just be a different thing. <laughs> but I think maybe more controversially, this point that Dumbledore makes makes me think a little bit about like another term that Steven Pinker came up with called progressophobia, the fear of progress, because then it makes it feel like there's no more progress to be had. And that's kind of (laughs) gives people meaning. (laughs) Right. Given the bugaboos and the shibboleths of our era, you're always going to be able to find one racist. You're always going to be able to find one person who doesn't agree with you for probably a bigoted reason or two or three. Right. And like that will never go away. And the internet technology will only make it easier to find those people or even to label people who aren't like that that way. I guess I'm thinking a little bit about how a more settled mind is okay with not having universal popularity or not needing agreement, right? Like, I think this is one of the kind of mental sicknesses of our era is like, especially our generation and younger, it seems to me the people who are the loudest on the internet anyway, it might not be a representative sample. I might be falling trapped to this bias even by having right, food. Right. But it's like people 30 and under especially are just less able to be disagreed with without it affecting them emotionally. Huh. You know? And yeah. in a way that it seems to be like with Hagrid, he's emotionally struck by the fact that he can't have universal popularity at the school or whatever, right? Like it really bothers Hagrid that Lucius Malfoy and Draco don't like him, right? And and want to see him fired and that kind of thing. I guess to put it in a more positive light, one great acknowledgement in my life is I can have strong thoughts about things and not be devastated if other people don't think that way. Mm -hmm. Understanding that, that's fine. Like that's actually the heart, the lifeblood and heartbeat of, in, of disagreement is, is not sharing of opinions. And that's actually that kind of dialectic is how we learn new things. Well, yeah, it'd be, it would be pretty difficult to do science if people couldn't disagree. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. But, and, but on the flip side, it's interesting, right? Because I think part of that is hardwired into our biology. Mm-hmm. Right. Part of it is, is that being in the out group is painful. It isn't just painful in some kind of, you know, stupid little insecurity and that kind of thing. It's it's painful because it means, you know, less access to resources. It means right. potential. I mean, it could mean death from a biological perspective, right? Certainly so, in a lot of uh, more tribal societies. And that's what we kind of like our ancestors grew up with for ostensibly a very long period of time, right? Yes. So yeah. right, we're, we're, we're not that far removed from that. It is counterintuitive. I actually think that's one of the interesting things about the dynamics in this book between 
the characters and how they react to fame. Like even if you look at Dumbledore, because that's who we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. he definitely gets that. It doesn't really matter. Other people's opinions of him do not seem to impact him almost whatsoever. Yeah. Right. He he's not in. That's not interesting to him because, and we've talked about this on the podcast previously, but the world and what's going on in the world are far too interesting to him for him to be that myopic. Right. Yeah. Cause a lot of this is all internal to like the kind of like social politics of Hogwarts, the families, the parents, the students, like the ministry of magic news. Yeah. Well, and if you look at the specific relationship types between the Malfoy family and Hagrid and the Malfoy family and Hermione, there's a lot of bigotry there, right? Like there yes. is a lot of, yes. um, unadulterated bigotry i would say like oh she's a mudblood right like that proud proud bigotry they would be more ashamed to not look down their noses at hermione and hagrid kind of thing yes yeah and i think it is um in specific the book illustrates through our most admirable character dumbledore that these kind of people are always going to exist even if you made it illegal for them to exist, they yeah. would exist, right? Yeah. It just gets driven underground. It's not like Hogwarts adopts a policy of placating the Malfoys of the world, but it also doesn't prevent them from sharing their opinion <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Jonathan Haidt, in his book with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, makes this, it's like an ancient proverb. You should prepare the child for the road, not the road for the child. Oh, yes, yes. And that's kind of the same motif that Dumbledore is saying to Hagrid is Hagrid, the road of reality is rough and will not have universal popularity for you, but that's okay, right? Yeah. You can still travel it. You can still learn how to navigate the road, even if it's not catered to you. And I think that that's such a deeply empowering message. It's like a call to action. It can be like, okay, yeah. You're right. It's an invitation to start developing your own psychological fortitudes against those things, which I, I think is is the more long-term teaching a man to fish rather than giving him fish, right? Yeah, I think um, just going back to it, I think that's what Dumbledore gets so much. is that, like, Isn't that what he's consistently working on teaching Harry? Mm-hmm. And actually everyone around he's him the is. the big picture character. Yeah, well, he's the, the character book. who's like he's the he's the Gandalf, you know. I, yeah. I always because Harry or because Lord of the Rings was my Harry Potter growing up. <laughs> like I, I I have that associative yeah. feeling, but like his deep desire to prepare these children for a world that isn't, and and, and so like so he lets them break the rules of childhood so they can learn the rules of adulthood, mm-hmm. and one of those is something that like. Look at Hagrid. He hasn't learned this yet. He's emotionally attached to other people's opinions of him. Yeah. And uh, in teaching Hagrid this lesson, Dumbledore isn't just teaching Hagrid this lesson. He's teaching all the children this lesson too. Well, and I think that that's the difference between, as they say, filling a bucket versus lighting a fire in education. The whole idea of bequeathing the Promethean flame to the next generation is not simply lighting their candles for them, but showing them how they can light their own candles. Yeah. It's a very much generative and agency building form of education. It's embodied too with Dumbledore, like having conversations with people, going to Hagrid's hut, like 
engaging, not just sending memos, right? <laughs> like not just writing emails to Hagrid or <laughs> merely, no, right? Like it's no. like it's 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 personal, it's interpersonal, and I think that's actually been one of the hardest parts about COVID is how lack of personal it's been for so many people. Because even though the technology is great to keep people connected, there is something lost, even in. I mean, it's different for you and me because we've know each other so well, but there's a tiny bit lost in the, in the fact that we're doing this over the internet versus all the ones we did face to face, right? Even if it's just uh, less unnecessary interruptions, which is probably good for the listener. (laughs) (laughs) True, true, true. Yeah. I just thought that was a really important part of Dumbledore in the book. And then probably the other main function of Dumbledore is in opposition to Fudge, right? Like he gives us the more embodied handling of a new updated scenario (laughs) which is believing harry believing that voldemort's back taking action not just wallowing in that so like one of the things he says to fudge as soon as the idea that voldemort is back is fudge like well what would i even do right and dumbledore gives him a clear mo he says remove the remove the dementors like that is an immediate thing you can do it's not abstract it's not like oh we must garrison the castles kind of thing. like we we need no, to no no like it, it's not abstract it's not even ideological it's like no here's something that will specifically help us right now go do that you have the power to do that he tells the school that it was voldemort that killed cedric right like he he's believing in harry and he's knowing what to do and he's doing something practical not just signaling that he i guess this is a disjunct i see is like okay if we want to help the world, we need to do practical things. Slogans aren't enough. Well, they're clearly not enough, right? Yeah, we need to. Yeah. And and like that is kind of the Dumbledore MO is he's uh, he's a doer. He, mm-hmm. he's, he's constantly acting in the world. And I like what you said where he and this is a theme we've talked about before and I'm sure we'll talk about in the future. But the believing of people and believing in what they say and how important that is for children to be believed. I remember, you know, and, and to be, and have their opinions respected, their, 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 their observations of reality. Cause if your observations of reality are consistently dismissed as you're growing up, then you're not going to have a, a good connection to reality. Right. Cause it's like, well, it doesn't matter. But if, if what you're saying is taken seriously, that in turn allows you to, take things more seriously. Mm -hmm. The context of the book is so crucial too for that point because the true moment of split between Dumbledore and and Fudge is the moment Voldemort's back, right? Like that is the catalyzing event that diverges their paths so greatly. It's because Fudge is having all of these second order things occur to him. It's like, well, it'll cause a panic. Um, We have to like manage the crowd. We have to, that'll probably affect our economies, right? Like, et cetera, like all of these second and third order things, not to mention like, oh my gosh, I've enjoyed being this kind of delegate and almost figurehead, but now I actually have to go like yeah now there's a real crisis that has to be dealt with if Voldemort's back I'm a wartime leader not a peacetime leader and that's a lot harder (laughs) yeah that's a big difference yeah Yeah. (laughs) Uh, whereas those things even if they occur to Dumbledore he's able to triage because he knows what can like okay Voldemort's back Harry had no reason to lie we have a dead Cedric the story checks out 
we even find they even find the fact that like Barty Crouch Jr. was moody the whole time doing the polyjuice potion. Like there is some circumstantial evidence here that leads up, and especially given the previous three years of what I've seen with this kid and his history, yeah. like there's good yeah. there's good reason to take this seriously. And if this is the case, you know, <laughs> other considerations can come later. We have to deal with this now, and that can be removing the dementors. Like that's step yeah. one in all that's, of this. That, that is a practical step we can take in this. And so maybe yeah. one way to think about it is that Fudge is a peacetime leader and Dumbledore is a wartime leader. And wartime leaders don't have the luxury of speculating on creating a panic. They have to. <laughs> they have to act. Yeah. They have to act, and they have to keep people alive. <laughs> Again, not something I would have been easily able to pick up on as a fourteen-year-old reading this book. There are some really high order things that Dumbledore's doing in in these stories and definitely this one. And I think it captured so beautifully in his speech to the whole school including the two visiting schools in his line differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. This is the reason why we try to stop Voldemort is because he wants to destroy this. This is yeah. what Voldemort wants to take away is our is our identical aims and our open hearts. Well, that's the interesting thing about uh, the whole Harry Potter universe, right? Is like, what is evil fundamentally? Like, why are the Malfoys evil, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because they hate difference. Yeah. Because they, not only do they hate it, they, well, not only do they demean it and hate it, but they want to eradicate it. Right. And, that, and then fundamentally, that's what Voldemort wants to do too. Mm -hmm. This is why I'm very, very, very skeptical of people who insist on the differences between people and not the similarities. Yes. Obviously, yes. obviously, there are differences between people. There are differences between towns. There are differences between schools. There are different differences between countries. There's differences between cultures. Like, yes, okay, that has been documented ad infinitum. But I have traveled quite a bit. And I have found the similarities between human beings to be vastly outweighing of the differences. And focusing on the similarities between people of other countries and myself, for example, has brought about um, some of the greatest social joys in my life. Learning about Korean culture with Korean friends kind of thing. Visiting different places in Europe and Southeast Asia. Meeting someone on a beach in Indonesia and talking to them about Indonesian history. Going to a park in Korea on a Sunday and seeing families playing with their kids. I see that in Canada all the time, right? Like, there's yeah. just maybe back to travel like we started at the top of this. Like, we say open-minded, but also open-hearted towards people who are different from us. And maybe the the open-hearted is the more important than the open-minded. Yeah. Because the open-minded, in some ways, it's just like, well, I, I will listen to your ideas and I'll think about them. But open-hearted is I will accept you. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is, again, why I am skeptical to wary to on guard against people in public life who insist on our differences. Yeah. Just because I think it, it never ends up in a healthy place. I mean, we don't have to go too far down this road, but I think a massive part of the polarization of cultures happens because people tell people on the news how different other people are than them, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you have pundits on American news channels insisting that America is a white supremacist country, you're going to get white supremacists. <laughs> <laughs> right? well, not only not only are you going to get white supremacists, you're going to get a lot of people who are 
angry at you for saying that because then suddenly they feel like they're being defined as the bad guys. I don't mean the white supremacists. I mean, like, wow, there's so much going on here, right? Uh, But I feel that... Language matters. Language really matters. matters Definitions of Why are we calling forth the bad in people? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I, I really do believe that that there are racist tendencies in a lot of people, right? I think yeah. I think it's I think it's ingrained or like outgroup tendencies, fear of the other, yeah, right. And um, and I think that that can manifest itself in many ways. But why are we calling that forth? And not only calling it forth, why are we saying, no, no, no? Actually, this is a defining feature of who you are. Mm-hmm. Like, and we're telling people that <laughs> if every outcome in a society is evidence of something like that that's just a road to disaster because there's no like chance of improvement. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, because, uh, because it's inherent. And I think this goes down there back to actually something that's interesting that we see in people in general, what fudge and Ron, and it, 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 it this plays out in, in goblet of fire, right? Is it's why do people want power? Mm-hmm. Well, they want it because they want to feel good. They want, they want to feel right. important. They want to feel, recognize they want to feel seen and <laughs> i think when 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 that happens to you let's say it, it does happen for example like let's say that uh that tomorrow you and i were to get you know hundreds of thousands of downloads of this episode right well that would be that would be hard to deal with <laughs> right because it would feel so good yes right and and we would be like well, what did we do there and like all, all of this stuff right and and we would want more of it yeah. Right. And we're not doing it to get hundreds of thousands of downloads, but mm-hmm. suddenly we would be confronted by, you know, this thing and that this thing that makes us, it feeds dopamine to us. Right. It, and so I think about these people who are, who are saying these things, right. Who are, who are dividing society. And I think it's dopamine yeah. to a large degree. It's, Oh, wow. Look at all of the people that I can get to listen to me. Look at the power that I have. Look at the strength I can rally. And it's all about this weird attention economy and stuff. And it's so funny that like Rowling is so good at talking about this. Like mm-hmm. what Ron starts lying about everything that happened, right? Because yeah, it keeps people interested. <laughs> because it keeps people interested and it keeps him in that position that's feeding him dopamine. But more than that, it's feeding it to him because he he isn't Dumbledore, <laughs> right? He hasn't separated his personal vision and view of himself from how other people are perceiving him. Yeah. And like, I don't want to pretend that that's easy, but I think if you can do that, differences are going to become a lot less important to you because you've actually got to know yourself as something that is defined internally, as opposed to something that is being defined by external factors, like how other people view you, but also Things you have no control over, like, you know, your skin color or yeah, where you yeah. were born or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, in a sense, Dumbledore is kind of like Aristotle's ethical hero. You know, he yeah. uh, he never gets too depressed if someone says a mean thing about him. And he never gets too high on himself when someone says a kind thing about him. <laughs> Which is the interesting <laughs> distinction between Hermione and Ron in this. Like, Hermione's yeah. getting all of this, you know, sexual attention that she hasn't got before or attraction, or whatever you want to call it. And instead of that going to her head and making her think better, her identity has been in being smart and thoughtful and, and 
and caring and you know crusading for you know the the rights of others yeah. that's the case with the house elves so she isn't impacted nearly as much as ron who obviously is you know he's got the insecurities of being from a big family trying to stand out trying to make a name for himself poverty all of these things that have built into him wanting that way more than hermione does and i think fundamentally it's because ron has been caring about the wrong things mm -hmm. the ron things <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a good segue. Let's talk about Hermione because she's obviously one of the main features in all the books, certainly this one. Maybe we'll start with her crusade to help the house elves. <laughs> okay. Because okay. um, well, I wanna, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Well, okay. So I loved this presence because it is a um, it is a kind of reverberation of some of the other great rights movements, like the the actually successful and necessary ones in history and there's obviously always more some of the things that she gets back when she's campaigning for the rights of the house elves are some combination of they don't actually want it they want to remain slaves which was a main argument against abolitionists for example yeah. during the um, abolition movement and slavery in the united states was slaves want to be slaves they wouldn't know what to do with themselves if they weren't which also is part of the other one where it's like, well, they're not smart enough to not be slaves, the house elves, right? Like they don't, right. they don't actually have like a capacity. And um, this was actually one of the arguments labeled against female emancipation. I think Mary Wollstonecraft wrote that, yeah, if you, <laughs> if you don't give women autonomy and education, they won't appear to be people who are interested in developing themselves in the world. Right. 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 Like you're totally not giving people the opportunity to even have these things. So it's like a logical fallacy to say that because it is this way now, it is impossible for it to be any other way based on changes in variables in people's lives. Right. Now, I think obviously that can be overstated, but it can also very easily be understated and those are like the two. So, so what was cool, I guess, about Hermione um, sticking up for the house elves is that it echoed to me taking down two of the greatest arguments against emancipation, both of American slaves and of women uh, that have been in history in, in actual rights movements when people were trying to liberate those people who are under the thumb of some sort of prejudice. So I don't know. What did you think about the rights movements of this one? Well, it actually kind of reminded me a lot of um, what you were talking about, of like becoming aware of the broader world and there's mm. people, there's more going on here. And it's one of the most enjoyable aspects of really good literature and particularly Harry Potter that I've found is uh, how Hogwarts keeps expanding. Yeah. Right. Like right. Uh, yeah. we, we yeah, find yeah. new something new about Hogwarts every time. And it's like this never ending world of which is, I think, a really good representation of reality itself, if properly understood, is curiosity is probably we've talked about this, the most important attribute for, a, you know, a, a mind, a mind that wants to continue down a path, the path of enlightenment. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like actually caring about observing the world and wanting to observe more of it and wondering how things work and so it's what we're introduced to this is is now not only is are are the kids being exposed to new things in the world they've already been exposed to puzzles to like deal with around themselves 
now we're being presented with society-wide puzzles, right? Yeah, we're, right. We're, being, we're being presented with more than just how do I deal with this problem that I face personally and more how do I deal with this problem that others face? Mm-hmm. For me, that was a very big part more so I would say than like the coming out of solipsism and instead of saying, oh, this individual's existence matters as much as it's like this problem matters. Yeah. Um, and that and, is such a crucial an activist. It makes you like a, it makes you want to go out into the world and deal with this problem. And that's such an aspect that I admire about youth and that I loved about my own is like this fiery desire mm-hmm. to act in the world to make it better and like it's it's almost um ethereal but it but it's so meaningful right and so to see hermione kind of wake up to this and then you know she's making her little badges and it's it's like it's (laughs) a lot of it seems like oh how is this ever going to make a difference but she does (laughs) but what like it's just like oh this is hermione's new pet project and no one else seems to care and they're making fun of her for it but that doesn't matter to her again Mm -hmm. because this goes back to what your your Dumbledore quote. It's not about how other people perceive her. She's got her internal compass and it says this is wrong. Well, this is like an important and crucial philosophical distinction, I think, in the realm of rights, revolutions and activism is that Hermione at no point makes it seem like she is doing this to get some sort of social cachet out of it. In fact, very much she's getting the opposite of that by doing this. She's in the trenches. In a modern context, she's certainly not... I mean, maybe if there was social media in the wizarding world, she would use it to, as a proper tool to get the word out there. But she's not like splattering her face around on these posters saying, come talk to me about it. I'm I'm on the right side of history here by having this particular opinion. Like it's not so much about her opinions for her as it is about liberating people who are suffering. That's a huge philosophical distinction in activism is like, what is the actual goal here? Is it self-aggrandizement or is it liberating struggling people? And part of why I think that's true is that she's able to articulate exactly how they're suffering and exactly how they would stop suffering. Or, or yeah. like what specific, again, like like Dumbledore says, get rid of the Dementors, not like, oh, change everything, change your policies in the ministry for this abstract problem. She says very specifically, well, no, they, they shouldn't be slaves. Like take away the fact that they, whatever magical charm they can't leave or whatever, right? Like very concrete steps to, I think that's a really good heuristic to differentiate people who are actually interested in alleviating the suffering of others and people who are grandstanding to put it at the other end of the spectrum, is how specific are their claims for alleviating the suffering of the people they claim to be alleviating the suffering about? How practical, how specific, and how actionable are they? Well, and I think even more so, which is what's interesting about Hermione's position, and I think why, like, for so many young women and now women our age, like, Hermione's kind of like a a North Star, right? Mm. Like Like a lot of women and girls associate themselves with her because of of her moral stance on these things but more importantly she's not doing this as a popular move right, right? It's, it's will you stand with your cause whether it's popular or not right I she doesn't is, she's not getting like 
much institutional help or, no. you know, it's, <laughs> uh, I don't want to get too catty here, so <laughs> I won't, I won't. I'll, but I'll give an example. It's not of, like of, she, of, it's not like Hermione has corporate America bowing down at her demands. Let's no, put it that but, way. But, I'll, but I'll, give, I'll give you an example from right now, whatever <laughs> someone may feel about it. Right. I think a lot of people who are deciding not to get the vaccination and like standing up against it, whether or not you agree with their opinion on science or any of that stuff, they're certainly not doing it to gain popularity. Right. Well, right? They're, they're... I would bracket off a segment of those people who are doing it to get popularity with their in-group. Right. Yes. And I, I did think of that as soon as I said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Might, but, but, but that's but definitely not everybody. In that no, but group. they're but they're yeah. suffering for it, right? right. In a, yeah. in a sense, right? And maybe they're su it could be that some of them are suffering for it because of the let's call it the dopamine they're getting from their in group. And I think that's a whole other problem. Yes. But it's definitely not societally popular to the point where people are people losing are, their jobs. Are, well, they're losing their jobs. They're sacrificing a lot for it. So it's I'm much more interested in the people who are willing to make sacrifices to hold unpopular opinions than I am. The person, like, I think maybe what you were going to say, who posts, you know, Black Lives Matter on their Facebook and then the next week is, you know, not doing anything and doesn't care. It's like what I like about Hermione and what mm. I think makes her a, a heroine and, a, and an archetypical hero is like she's doing the unpopular thing because she believes that it's right. And she doesn't give up because others aren't joining her quickly and and going through this with her and making it a movement she just continues along the line and each little step along the way she sees as a, a success and like the fact yeah. that she now i'm gonna get his name wrong but dobby did i get it right yeah dobby <laughs> um dobby the fact that she has dobby in the kitchen actually getting paid now she's yeah. like well they'll they'll see that and they're gonna they're gonna want his life mm -hmm. the thing is there's just there's so many great examples in history of, you know, like Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King Jr. or Thomas Paine or even, you know, I'm not as familiar, but a little bit to the extent Gandhi, even philosophers like Jeremy Bentham. There's these people in history who represented the Hermione's of their time and era based on the issue that they're talking about. I imagine right now and in the last 30 years, there's lots of these kind of people. There's probably lots of these kind of people in like Iran or Saudi Arabia oh, yeah. right now, right? Like countries that are a lot more tyrannical than ours, uh, than Canada is, that are in the midst of their own rights revolutions that are certainly not doing it for popularity and with a lot more danger attached yes. to their stances yeah. than it ever is... Uh, Again, my little quip is um, one of the reasons why benign liberal democracy is superior to other forms of government is that um, in other forms of government, if you question the suppositions of those forms of government, you'll be taken out back and shot in the head. But if you question <laughs> if you question the presuppositions of benign liberal democracy, you'll probably just get more Twitter cachet. <laughs> and, if, and if a person can't see the moral difference between those two... I guess you're a person who can't see the moral difference between those two. <laughs> or Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I just did the Gulag Archipelago, a three-part series on my other podcast. Here's a guy who was exiled from his country after he'd already been imprisoned in it for like eight years for the crime of being a little bit disparaging of Stalin in a note. And the Gulag Archipelago is just this like 
three volumes scream against how power degenerates into just pure human misery kind of thing. And, and a horror, yeah, yeah, horror tragedy. I recently read it. Well, I read the abridged version. But there's these people, right? There's these people that, yes, we know the names of Frederick Douglass. We know the names of Solzhenitsyn and Martin Luther King. Again, like Harry and that little hook of conscience to tell Cedric about the dragons. If you are doing this for social status, you're going to get sniffed out one way or another. Yeah. People disagree with Hermione, but I don't remember any part of the book where they say to her, you're doing this to further your resume. Right? <laughs> or your portfolio or whatever. I guess this is all about why sincerity and authenticity as philosophical concepts appeal to me so much is that they're the things that you would do even if nobody else knew you were doing them. And the kind of like clinical element of this that's so important is that that is actually a kind of um, sustainable form of dopamine. Like it's long term. It's going to be with you forever. It's going to keep you going in the dark nights of the soul when it is an existential quandary and not a social one that you're facing, right? Yes. And and so that's why all of this is part of the, the roots of why I think Hermione is one of, if not the strongest character in the entire franchise, is because of her development of all that. Again, presaging Deathly Hollows. Other than Dumbledore, I suppose, she's really the only character in the book who always believes and trusts Harry. When he says, I didn't put my name in the Goblet of Fire, I didn't. Yeah, she believes him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like you brought up a little earlier, like the friendship between Hermione and Harry. I wondered if you wanted to uh, expound some of your thoughts on that if we haven't covered it yet. Well, I'm just going to I'll just say that I, I really appreciated in a society that sexualizes so much. It's nice to have two people who are close, meaningful, best friends, right? Yeah. That that isn't what it's about. The qualities that are being elevated and appreciated in Hermione are not, I mean, yes, now she's beautiful and Ron's in love with her, like all this kind of stuff, but those aren't the things that she values in herself, nor are they the things that Harry values in her. And actually, they're not even the things that Ron initially values in her. And... You know, frankly, for a for a world that does spend a lot of time commoditizing women and a lot of the horrors that we've seen throughout human history have been that, I think it's a really enlightened and powerful statement that Rowling has made here, you know, that that's not Hermione's value. Mm-hmm. It might be something that she has and that is wonderful to have and, and good, but it's not what makes her her and it's not what makes her valuable to Harry and Harry being, you know, ostensibly the protagonist, her value to him is pretty important in the book. right? Well, yeah, because that's true. Like it's kind of like Harry knows what part about Hermione really matters to Hermione and asks about that and talks about that. Kind of like how we talked about in our stand by me episode, how Chris is a best friend to Gordy not only because he's nice to Gordy, but he asks Gordy to talk about the things he knows matters the most to Gordy, right? Yeah. Like yeah. He, Gordy's stories and his ability to be a storyteller. Yeah, you're hitting the nail on the head. Like, that's exactly what I mean. And both Harry and Hermione do that for each other. But see, the thing is that's it's two-pronged because Chris both knows how to get the best out of Gordy by asking Gordy what he wants, but he's also sincerely interested in Gordy's stories. He actually likes them. And Harry knows what Hermione likes about herself, but also likes it himself, right? Like that's why it's not just 
kindness, but it's also a friendship, perhaps. It's like, not only do I see the things that you love about yourself that you want to talk about or engage in, but I actually, of my own accord, love those things too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And and there's some great intertwining there between um, Harry and Hermione. Maybe here's one that um, you'll have some thoughts about because maybe she's in or mentioned in one of the earlier books, but this is the first of the Harry Potter novels where we get a uh, full-throated introduction to our good friend Rita Skeeter, the uh, (laughs) media personality in the story. Yeah, yeah. You know, the media and its own agenda. And the only way to overcome Rita Skeeter's writings is to be able to think for yourself. But um, what did you think of the media meditation? In, uh, actually, yes. Yeah, so it was funny. Book. I was going to say, I don't really have any more thoughts on characters, but I guess she is a character. I, I <laughs> But I see her more as a... She's a... A, a representation. Yeah, she's yeah, a... a representation, yeah. Like, it's, it's interesting because I've spent a lot of time with the media, thinking about the media, following the media throughout my life. And post-COVID, how much more media has been consumed by people? Oh, well, even, exactly. Yeah. And and how much are people focusing on what the media has to say? And I guess it's interesting the perception that I think a lot of people have about it, which, you know, in this case, it's, it's you know, dulled down to consumable by you know, young people, which is, you know, gossip, gossip is bad. Mm-hmm. And of course, Rowling would feel that way at this point, she's become an international, you know, legend. And so there's going to be a lot of gossipy people trying to ruin her reputation. And we see that now, right? Yeah. But I don't think that's inherently a media problem. Because right. I think, I think what the, the, the real issue here is people like to see other people fail. Mm-hmm. And the reason they like to see it, and I think this is like one of the darkest parts of humanity is because they are so many people are disappointed with where they are in life are unhappy. This goes back to the Harry Dumbledore, Hermione, Ron thing in this book, but I think it's incredibly important, even how they react to what's being written about them. Mm-hmm. right yeah, and true. like H- Hagrid's reaction is so is like this kind of devastation Hermione's is this annoyance but more importantly she's like she looks into the depth of it is like how is this being found out right and that becomes what she's interested in because she's interested in the world and a lot less in her reputation necessarily right mm-hmm. fundamentally I think that a lot of what the media has become with this like this uh you know gossip rags that kind of thing but but also what we were talking about earlier about highlighting people's differences and highlighting maybe aspects of them to, to tell a certain kind of story that isn't necessarily aligned with the complexity of reality right Hagrid for example right his mom turns out to be this you know pretty deadly giant who's done some horrible things yeah and that doesn't tell us anything really actually about Hagrid. Yeah. Because we know Hagrid and the complexity <laughs> of who he is. But it certainly creates it it creates caricatures. Yeah. That's what I want to say. I think that a good story like Harry Potter creates a person that we mm. can understand and know and feel like even Fleshed out. ostensibly have a relationship with these these these, you know. Because how how is it less real? 
for someone, let's say, you know, who's a 33-year-old woman who read Harry Potter five times and then, you know, encounters the situation and approaches it like Hermione would because, you know, that's the paradigm she now views the world through. Right. How is that any different than, like, something your mom might have told you that is a good way to go about things, right? These these have become real people (laughs) in our lives to an extent. But in the media... Those people don't, those aren't real. Mm-hmm. You never get a fulsome human, in, well, not never, you know, some biographies do a better job of this than others, but there always seems to be an agenda in the way that something's being painted. Yeah. Whereas let's call it in science or in like the art of storytelling, the nuance is, is, is the truth. Mm-hmm. And I think when we water down reality to create a black and white world, which interestingly enough, like Harry Potter is a lot about good and evil. But when you dig into what makes something evil and what makes something good in the Harry Potter universe, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it is a, it's a philosophy of life and the good, the true, and the beautiful, and like the corruption of that. Whereas in the media, it's like you're associated with something or, or Hermione is getting these hate letters because <laughs> uh, she's broken Harry's heart, right? Yeah. Well, A, we know that's not true. So, so, so a lie is being perpetrated. But what business is that of anyone else's anyway? Mm. The deep humanity of the Harry Potter world was its true magic all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's no doubt there there's i, I no doubt yeah there. i want to i want to flesh this out a bit by drawing a parallel to uh business obviously media is a business so it's mm-hmm. really it's not that <laughs> abstract of a parallel but um if you can imagine like a more like a like a factory and what used to be you know euphemistically called externalities which is pollution right <laughs> like uh making the environment worse there's an obvious parallel here with journalism. There's so much good journalism, but there is a externality to journalism, which is obviously like insufficient research and smearing of reputation kind of thing, right? Like I'm um, playing fast and loose with facts, truth, intention, making caricatures, not fleshing out a story, preying on weaknesses of your environment, namely this other people's minds. Whereas mm-hmm. a, a factory, the environment is like the physical environment. Now, at one level, you can make laws against this kind of thing that can be good in terms of like, I don't know, what it's different in different countries, but I think more or less, there's probably some sort of law. You can't just straight up lie about people that are like demonstrable lies to smear reputation, right? There's certainly in England, there's those kind of laws. And probably Canada, too. And similar to factories, like there's laws now against polluting or littering, right? Like if you drive, even never mind factories, if you drive down a highway, there's like littering fine $2,000. So there are institutional guards to attempt to dissuade these kind of externalities. But like littering, I think even more than like the $2,000 fine, it, it, it to, to make it something actionable in the world it needs to become cultural so rather than being scared of the fine it's more like hey asshole don't litter what the fuck are you doing right like it's it's a kind of socially reinforced it becomes a norm even more than a law right like 
it's just not cool to pollute. Never mind it being illegal, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just it's a it's a public opinion almost, but not even public, like individual opinion. We know that we know the ramifications, and maybe we're getting somewhere in journalism where it's like, well, we actually kind of are starting to see the ramifications of a fracturing of journalistic integrity, yeah. <laughs> right, and society. Yeah. yeah. So maybe maybe we can make being a bad journalist and having corrupt media uncool like littering is uncool so if you are a friend of someone who writes a blog or is a journalist to be like hey asshole this piece it's a caricature it's untrue you were sloppy here why did you do that it's kind of more like social standard setting between friends between Mm -hmm. colleagues and associates where like i don't know i mean i can't really remember if this happens in the book or not but like people going up to read a skeeter and being like listen motherfucker what the hell are you doing are you a bad person? Why are you doing this? This is so, this, is, this isn't even meeting a standard of any sort. Are you okay with not meeting any sort of standard? Is that the kind of person you want to be? And, and, well, and it's not a law. It's not a law. No. It's a social attitude based on, <laughs> I might say, highest common, dena- highest common denominator standard holding. Yeah. Well, and look at it this way. If I found this really interesting, right? She's br- she brags about it. Yeah, she she's proud of the fact that she's destroying these people. And as someone who, you know, has struggled with that himself and, you know, <laughs> that, that being a part of of my identity, let's say, of taking people out or, you know, yeah. finding out the dirt on them that was necessary to, you know, move them along. Now, obviously, in my case, I'm also, you know, I'm a nuanced being who had reasons for that. But the but the <laughs> point is, there's a lot of negative incentives that she's actually utilizing because people are allowing her to use those things to destroy others because they're just believing them. Mm -hmm. The incentive that she has to continue her reason for doing it is because, is because people are believing her. Well, and it's a business model, right? I think you have to undermine the business model. (laughs) Which is and outrage like, and, and, that and is, clickbait uh, uh, and all that kind of ultimately, stuff. Ultimately, uh, like, well, so I was talking to a friend in the media recently, and uh, he said to me, like, I have friends who will write, spend weeks writing these really thoughtful pieces about like some something important in the world, and it will get you know fractional readership. But you have some kind of clickbaity headline, uh, or you know. Trudeau did this. Can you believe it? Or, you know, Aaron O'Toole's a racist and it will yeah. spread everywhere. And so like the question is at what, like, at what point are we incentivizing people to do these things? And well, I think we are right. Yeah. Even myself, I, I find it all the time, like, especially before I started this podcast with you, but like, it still happens to me a lot is I find myself reacting to those things because they're just psychologically triggering in a way that, um, that thoughtfulness isn't, but thoughtfulness, like you said, is maybe the long-term better dopamine strategy. Cause after like a long conversation with you about these things or others, I have a lot more sense of, you know, existential peace and right. joy and happiness than I do after feeling rage about, you know, the fact that Trudeau is, uh, you know, going to Tofino on reconciliation day <laughs> like that. Everyone knows that story. Yeah. Right. And everyone's not everyone, but a lot of people are mad about it. Yeah. Why do we all know that? <laughs> what does it yeah, really yeah, matter? Yeah. Well, and so 
You're, you're reminding me of another element of this where, yeah, it's the business model of, you know, quote unquote, modern journal, journalism to basically hack and take advantage of psychological weaknesses and biases. So there is a, um, there's like, there's, there's like two problems, I guess, or there's two orders of ways to think about this. So we look at the media thing, the, the newspapers or media outlets that are doing this and say, how dare you hack? these people right but there's the maybe harder part of we looking at the people the population say how dare you be hacked and i think it takes a little bit more nerve maybe to stand up to the crowd who is being outraged than to the institutions that are doing the outraging and yeah and 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 that's part of the role is that like to make it part of the harry potter world I don't, I actually, again, it's been like 11 months since I read the book. What needed to happen in a, in a more socially healthy culture is the people who know Hermione or who know Hagrid or like are witnesses to the slanders and the libels. I guess it's libel in print that Rita Skeeter is writing about these people. Or defamation. To, yeah, or defamation. Yeah. Going up to the people gossiping about him, like, how dare you do this? Why are you doing it? You don't know anything about this, and you're letting yourself be hacked by this journalistic hack. Like, you need to be better than this. Oh, and interestingly, <laughs> I have a, a pretty personal example of this happening to me, but also it happened to a friend of mine uh, mm-hmm. named Walid Solomon, who has appeared on my other podcast, and he's a high high-performing, high-level lawyer in Canada, very involved in politics, right. a very, very good man. But there was this guy running around saying that he wanted to implement Sharia law in Canada and spreading like quite a lot of slander and, and defamation about him across Canada mm. through this blog that he had called the National Telegraph, the same one that you know spread slander about me. But he took him to court on it and he won yeah. and, uh, and won a 500000 lawsuit against this guy and it and it's it's that kind of thing where where you know waleed stood up to these people who were discriminating against him because of his difference mm-hmm. and using that discrimination to try to build not only to gain political power because they were pushing it against him and for uh, peter mckay to a degree but more than that it was because they they could stir up this crowd of people who are scared of Muslims, let's say, right, and create a you know create a sensationalism around an idea and create an idea that's just completely false. It's slander. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that's happening in Harry Potter here, and it it takes people like Waleed standing up against these people and saying, "No, there's going to be consequences for you lying." Yeah, it's a, it's a longer term project and it's grassroots and it's not top-down legal but like my factory example it's one thing to impose sanctions on a factory that pollutes that's that is one way of curtailing it but it's low resolution it might not get everything right it's totally different if consumers stop buying the products of the factory that pollutes right yes Uh, Yes. that's that's a completely different form of (laughs) correcting a behavior let's say like polluting and it has different ramifications and it's more sustainable it's less loophole gameable in the way that laws are 
right? Yeah. In his book, his last novel, The Pale King, David Foster Wallace writes a lot about the IRS. Like that's a huge part of the novel. And uh, one of the sections of that book that's so funny is how the tax law writers are like consistently employed trying to figure out how to get ahead of the tax loophole finders. <laughs> like the the inevitability of um, yeah. every top-down sanction having a loophole somewhere that someone can find. Whereas it's a lot harder to find loopholes in ground-up movements because it's the actual existence of your own product is dependent on those ground-up grassroots consumers, let's say, for factory. Or to make it like journalism, again, getting clicks, getting subscriptions. The long-term solution is not laws against defamation. It's consumer intolerance of petty journalism. And I think we're seeing some of this coming around with um, the rise of Substack and independent journalists going, uh, leaving their institutions that have been for one way or another captured by ideology or clickbaitiness, or like you say, like getting headlines like Trudeau goes to Tofino just how that becomes its own story versus like any actual leadership we would want on reconciliation, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's it's its yeah. own icon versus anything actionable on the ground. So I guess I'm uh, <laughs> I'm declaring a war on naivete and and motivated reasoning well, <laughs> and irrationality. I, I, now, I admire now, your audacity. <laughs> I guess I'm I, I'm saying that slightly tongue in cheek. But also, I guess I would want to champion the idea that it's not pure elitism to, to have journalistic standards. <laughs> I can't no. believe I have to say it like that. But like, again, like in Harry Potter, if there weren't people gossiping about what Rita Skeeter talked about, she wouldn't be able to write what she does. Exactly. Whereas I think like if it's, it's you talk about this a lot, it's like, it's looking at something and then going down into the details of it. Mm -hmm. On the surface, people could be like, oh, that Rita person, she's awful because, yeah. but like, wh what is she, she, yeah, she, maybe she's feeding off of the, the, you know, the lesser natures of the people that she's engaging in this kind a, of transaction with. A different problem and worth taking on and worth talking to Rita but about. That's not, I'm not the fundamental problem. Yeah. You, you need to have... I think you need to a sophisticated and nuanced take on problems needs to understand every element of it. And Rita is one element of the problem. And the gossipers are a much bigger, thorough, sustainable part of the problem. Because even if Rita is gone, the appetite for Rita remains, thus allowing Rita 2.0 to rise. A different person taking advantage of the same psychological deficiencies in the population. This is actually one of the things that I am a little bit despairing of, of the obsession with Donald Trump, is that if you obsess about the singular person, you don't pay attention to the society around him that made him possible, right? Yeah. Like mm -hmm. Trumpism is a much bigger problem than Donald Trump. And so media fascination with the individual is missing the point of combating the ideology and figuring out what's feeding the ideology and how to cut it off at the source. You know, that's a completely different podcast about left of center politics abandoning working class people in the United States right now. That's a completely different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> in Harry Potter and in, in real life, I'm a little bit hard nosed on this topic. I think usually I'm pretty 
sympathetic to opposing views. This one I'm a lot less sympathetic to opposing views on because of the damage done in our culture to fractioning truth and epistemic groundbreaking between people where we can't even agree on what's happening. This is how societies go to war with each other. This is the biggest problem that we have. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I, I agree. Or this is the biggest problem that we have. It's the biggest in... technical problem that we have, which is feeding into our deeper psychological and existential problems. Yes. I think. Yes, yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. Part of the why this is such a difficult thing is that taking on the populace versus taking on the journalists is starting to tread on the ground of like, are we are we abandoning live and let live right now? Are we abandoning individual liberty to consume whatever we want? No, because it's not a top down thing. It's a ground up thing. And ground up things are cultural. And the damage of feeding really bad journalism or even like, oh, it's on the news. Why would the news lie? Well, okay, you need to grow the fuck up right now. <laughs> Yeah. Right, Like yeah. understanding incentives and business models. Again, there are different types of people that can benefit from different types of approaches. And I'm certainly one of them. You know, there's like nice little old ladies who watch the news that have their opinions. I'm not going to come boot stomping in on <laughs> their naivete, let's say, kind of thing. But yeah. um, gossip and clearly slanted opinions in what are supposed to be news pieces are beneath thinking people in public life and we need better yeah and we and and like i think you said it's it is easy to say oh those people are the problem but really the people who are providing them with the incentives are the problem yeah i mean it's a i guess it's two problems <laughs> yeah yeah it's someone taking advantage of bad actor or it's bad actors taking advantage of bad incentives. You know, it's funny that um, one of the uh, examples I've always used of like how to improve the quality of your social situation is uh, unimpressed students at school or unimpressed parents at school board meetings, <laughs> because that's obviously a catalytic feature of uh, that Virginia election we just yes. saw. Yes. I always find it funny when my hypothetical scenarios have some <laughs> sort, find some sort of real Become life real. Yeah. yeah. It makes me feel like I'm onto something. <laughs> <laughs> you brought him up a little earlier. Is there anything about Sirius you wanted to talk about? He did have one line that I loved, and we've talked about it before, but it's really beautiful. Um, this is Sirius talking to Harry, and he says, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. Right. And, and uh, mm -hmm. I think we've talked about how you can tell a lot about someone about how they treat the server at the restaurant kind of yeah. thing, or um, I guess a boss, how a boss treats their employees or uh, you know, how you can treat, how you treat someone who, who doesn't stand to do anything for you. Yeah. Yeah. Sam Harris has talked about this a few times even about lying, how he got an email from someone about an experience where this woman was out with one of her friends and a third friend phoned and asked if she could do something for her. And, and the friend lied over the phone in front of the third friend, right? Like, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. at this place and they weren't. And so like, oh, well, you're going to lie to this person. Maybe you lie yeah, to what me makes sometimes. You think you lie to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's an interesting way of thinking about like how when you have reality as your basically arbiter, you don't have to um, 
remember these little dis- dis- deceptions no. <laughs> along the way. And uh, I've met lots of people in my life where I had a really, like they seemed great. And then you get them in a different context and you see how they talk to somebody else. And you're like, oh, interesting. I actually have had this experience a lot working with people and colleagues when we working with kids because most of my work colleagues when I spent time with them it was socially or at work functions so it was always adults but every now and again we'd get into a scenario where the kids are around it's a like a program shared together and there there were some times where I was like I had a really positive valence about a person and then I listened to how they talk to kids and I was like oh (laughs) <laughs> at best you're in the wrong field my friend <laughs> right uh right and my opinion went down or vice versa like <laughs> someone i wasn't totally sure of but then i saw how they treated kids and talked to them i was like oh okay there's more going on here than than appears in other contexts right so i just loved that line from sirius in all of this there was one note i made about barty crouch the dad not the son because what i thought was so interesting was that he hated the Death Eaters. He basically wanted to do to the Death Eaters what the Death Eaters wanted to do to everybody else. Mm-hmm. So Barty Crouch reminded me of that line from Nietzsche, fight not long with monsters, lest you become one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think uh, ostensibly Barty Crouch is a good guy, but there's something about him that's not quite like our other heroes, right? Yes. Like he works True. for the ministry, he hates the Death Eaters, but he... He would want to do to the Death Eaters what the Death Eaters want to do to them. That is not how we conceive of retribution, I guess, in our benign liberal democracies. No, no. <laughs> it's uh, treating your prisoners more humanely than your enemy would treat theirs is a moral distinction. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? But. Again, like that's just a fun little element of the book that I wouldn't have really picked up on as a 14-year-old. So it's like rewarding again as an adult to kind of conceptualize of that a bit more. Um, and then the only other character note I made was um, there was something so beautiful in the book because I think in this one, this is the first time that someone from Harry's Hogwarts life comes to the Dursley's house to get him, right? Or to be around him. So it's Mr. Weasley. I just made a note of, he can't believe that the Dursleys won't even say goodbye to Harry. And it's like that moment when a quality person in your life meets an unquality person in your life (laughs) and the little things that they do to help. Because like, what's so charming in that scene is like just how aghast and taken aback Mr. Weasley is at how the Dursleys treat Harry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just no, so know. heartwarming. Because they love Harry so much, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, and it is really that that massive distinction between the people who actually care about you and the people who are just around. Yeah. Right? Yeah. How the Dursleys slink back when Mr. Weasley is there. <laughs> you know, yes. they're they're at their most aggressive when there isn't anyone there who can oppose them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, that goes back to your serious quote, right? Is, yeah. is how how do we treat people that are beneath us? Yeah, that's true. In the hierarchy yeah. or otherwise. Good connection. So that's all of the character stuff I have. I have a couple more notes on like the things in the book, but is there any other character stuff you wanted to talk about? You talked a little bit about Ron and his flirting with yeah, fame. Yeah, I mentioned Ron a number of times. I, I just was really struck by how easily corrupted he was, but we've gone over that. Not right. corrupted, but like how easily, how easily... How do he and Harry reconcile again? I don't remember. Oh, uh, Ron watched him with the 
do the dragon stuff and realized there's no way that he would have lied about that to go and do something so dangerous. To oh yeah, life. that's right. Yeah. 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 Interesting how it's always um, reality that is course correcting in this book. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. As I tap yeah, my nose. It is interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> I made a note on the dark mark because one of the thing, the, the, the scene at the Quidditch world cup where the dark yes. mark gets shown in the sky in the book, one of the things that I, I thought, was really interesting that she wrote about is how this was ext- especially scary to the older people, the people who could remember what it was like when Voldemort mm-hmm. was around before. And it's a generational thing. And it, again, I don't want to make this, a, this isn't necessarily about any one ideology over another, but it is interesting talking to people who've lived th- when, when something that happened in history that was really terrible gets long enough away. And there's like a decreasing amount of people who have firsthand memories of it. But some of those ideas can come back into vogue for younger generations that are just, or at least don't make any impression on them if a sign of it comes back, right? So obviously the easiest one to to get here is communism. The luxury of hoping for a bloody revolution if you're, you know, of our generation versus like someone in their 60s who lived in Romania or the Czech Republic or Poland or something like that, right? Or Russia. Uh, or, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. I thought that was a really interesting nod in the book to that generational thing when people who can remember certain things in history versus people who didn't live through that, right? Yeah, it's a it's a, a common, you know, the, the cycle of, you know, when times are good, we often forget how bad they can be, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, it, I think that is a, a really good distinction to draw, yeah. Well, that's why... Eric Weinstein calls the end of World War II to now the big sleep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's been what is that? 45 to now is um is uh 76 years. So a, a a vanishingly small fragment of the population was even alive during World War II, let alone was old enough to remember it. What does Douglas Murray say? He says something like those of us who read up about history know about these things and we just don't want to be dragged down by your revolution again. <laughs> why are you got to take, yeah. we've already learned history. Of, we've already learned these lessons in history. Why you got to drag us through it again? Oh, <laughs> uh, and but it just feels like we're barreling towards it anyway. <laughs> but, I, but again, I think that that to put a positive spin on it, it's like, okay, so let's say the people in the Harry Potter world who remember the dark Mark, Part of knowing what the dark mark is and what it represents to me puts on a kind of galvanizing duty to give next generation something new to work on, to actually bequeath a future or or a hope or something really revitalizingly educate the next generation on these things and give them excitement about new opportunities. I'm not totally certain that that's what the baby boomers did for us (laughs) (laughs) there's a there's a whole podcast (laughs) yeah i'm not an expert on these kind of things i i don't know how much anticipated future versus nihilism was bequeathed to our generations from (laughs) our parents generation and and that kind of thing you know the post-war generation and i don't want to make it a generational war thing or anything like that there does seem to be a cost to hedonism. <laughs> I think eventually comes. It's not as if that's something that we, humanity hasn't known forever, right? Like how 
all of our greatest wisdom literatures, most of our greatest novels all point to the meaninglessness of hedonism. And yet this is the perennial problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought it was an interesting dark mark reminding the older generations because it isn't as vivid if you don't live through it. Even reading the Gulag Archipelago or, you know, stuff out of China, it like, it's so hard. Like, it's even impossible for me to fathom, right? In a way that it wouldn't I, especially be. Especially when you're reading. And, and that's the interesting part, right, is that the, the people who lived through it were terrified because it wasn't impossible for them to fathom. Yeah. And I think it's even like, this is the problem with be with, you know, avoiding suffering is that you don't have a relationship with it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so you don't, you don't fear what suffering can do to you. If you were, you said something earlier that I, I just want to draw into this, right. Is like, maybe they were more afraid, but, but rightly so. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and they were rightly afraid because they knew what, what that kind of evil could do. So going into suffering, this is, it seems like a non sequitur, but it's not. Mm. I don't think we're properly afraid of what the avoidance of suffering is doing. Mm-hmm. People like Solzhenitsyn, he knew, right? He, he, the avoidance of truth, let's call it, you know, live not by lies, the idea, that idea, his own avoidance of truth, and therefore, you know, and propping up of the revolutionary tendencies and all this stuff. He's like, that's where I went wrong. He blames himself for his own position. And that's what transforms everything, right? Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the everyone trying to avoid suffering that allowed it to continue because they were all trying to avoid the, his, the fate that he experienced, not to the full extent, and therefore weren't able to push up against this, this radical evil. Similarly, Fudge in Harry Potter is not able to deal with, you know, the evil because he's not properly, af- he's not properly afraid of, of what that evil means mm-hmm. and what that evil is. And he has personal reasons to not look in that direction. Yeah. Right? To, to put it off. What's that? Um, there's a great line. I think it's Upton Sinclair says, um, it's really hard to get a man to see an idea if uh, his wallet rests on him not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Or you can extend it to, um, it's really tough to get a politician to see an idea if his next campaign depends on him not seeing it. <laughs> Yeah, or him or him or her not seeing it, right? Hey, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> Incentives are powerful things. But but sorry, I, I feel like I didn't make a lot of sense there. But I wanna I wanna pull it back because I think right. it does make sense. It, I just want to explain how it makes sense. You aren't going to be properly afraid of something you haven't if you haven't experienced what can happen if it goes badly. Mm-hmm. I don't think as a society we're properly afraid of what happens if we don't understand the purpose and meaning of suffering. Yeah, that's a good hypothesis. And how I compare that to Harry Potter is Harry's constantly learning lessons from the things he's experiencing. A lot of them are suffering, Mm -hmm. being an orphan. But what does that make Harry into? It makes him into a a moral being because he's taking his suffering and he's turning it into an education that's making him, that is improving his character. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't be able to have the character that he has if he hadn't suffered the way he had. Yeah. He just wouldn't be able to do it. He wouldn't. That would be impossible. So you, you can't have the hero without the suffering. Mm-hmm. This is actually the topic of Paul Bloom's latest book. It's called The Sweet Spot, and it's um, there we go. Life's meaning through pleasure and suffering. He obviously makes a more psychologically informed argument throughout all of this, but that's part of what he talks about: is that um, suffering 
even if it's not always like what we want out of something, knowing that it's going to ha- it's going to be like a co-rider along with the meaningful things in life, make it much more bearable and necessary. Yeah. <laughs> but he differentiates chosen suffering versus unchosen suffering for meaningful elements out of it. And I think that's true. And with the dark mark, like the, the wizards who don't remember Voldemort, who weren't alive, you know, you're born into a scenario where you feel like it's the default. It's impossible not to feel like what you live in now is the default human setting again, because of that solipsism that we talked about earlier and Steven Pinker, all of these, you know, like rationalists who I admire, they say, you know, we're asking all the wrong questions. We're not asking why are there, is there anything wrong in our culture that we're asking, why is anything right in it? Like the human, st- the human default is not benign liberal democracy right? like the the amount of governments in history and even in the world today are overwhelmingly on one side of the of the ledger right it's autocracies or feudal systems or monarchies or dictatorships or one form of tyranny or another to be able to resolve your differences by voting versus force is a categorical difference in the nature of your culture and uh it's worth remembering at all times i would say Again, not to get into a much longer podcast on uh, <laughs> election integrities, which is, you know, a huge thing as well, which mm. would also take us back into the media. But anyway. Yes, yes. Yeah, I just wanted to note little things here. I loved the vigilance against the unforgivable curses. That was a motif yep. I really enjoyed from our heroes. You talked about it, and we've talked about it lots on this podcast. The kids idolize Crumb. They're worshiping their stars. You know, the hero worship being deranging, if not (laughs) dangerous. More great storytelling, like we've talked about in the other ones. And because this podcast isn't focused on book reviews or movie reviews, we don't always necessarily glom onto these things. But I just got such a beautiful aesthetic kick out of the storytelling in this. So Moody is talking about someone putting someone's name in the cup. Right. Oh, okay. Um, and then we learn that someone is stealing polyjuice from the chamber. So we think it could be like from the second book, like our heroes take yeah. the polyjuice, but it's actually Barty Crouch Jr. So it focuses our attention on, oh, yeah, this was in the other book. They did that in the other book. Maybe that's, well, that's probably what's happening. But it's actually Moody himself doing that. Yeah, it's, it's giving you the it's giving you the the clue, but then yeah. misdirecting you on it. But you're never going to suspect the person who says that thing. No, no, <laughs> right? Because no. that's like putting yeah. So it's just it's great. Crouch Barty Crouch Jr. as Moody is protecting Harry, but for his own reasons. So as the as the audience of the book, um, I think it's like that scene on the stairs, maybe when Moody sees. Harry under the invisibility cloak, but he doesn't give him up. We think at that moment, oh, Moody's protecting Harry because he's the defense against the dark arts teacher. I think Snape's in that scene. So Snape is the bad guy. Oh, good job, Moody. You are actually one of the good guys. We love you. But actually it's Barty Crouch preserving Harry to be killed by Voldemort, not taken by Snape in this moment, right? So it's just like such great storytelling for us to believe his motivations, but it's for a different reason. But our brains fill in the pieces of what's going on. So yeah, you brought up the Pensieves, Karkaroff naming names back in the day, Patronum in the maze. I loved the port key element of this, like introducing the port key. Yeah, the port port key key was really cool. That was the name. I couldn't, for some reason, that's what the the Triwizard Cup becomes is a port key, yeah. 
And they actually visualize this so well in the movie of how it's kind of glowing and bluish and how at the end of the book slash movie, since Harry's wand has the same, it was made from the same Phoenix feather, yeah. Phoenix feather as Voldemort's, all of the most recent people that Voldemort killed come out of his wand and protect Harry while he can Accio up the port key and escape. And I love how in this like super deep and thematic climax to the film, you see it really well in the film, the story mechanism is still just this lowly little port key. Right. So small a thing (laughs) to to, to, like, how is he possibly going to escape out of this situation? There's like 20 Death Eaters and Voldemort and just Harry. Well, it's the memory of his family. And then again, this lowly little port key. Chekhov's (laughs) port key, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. You never know what little thing is going to be useful. Yeah. And so I just it's again, I wanted to just gush for a moment about the really, really high level writing and idea creation and mechanisms in the book that allow other parts of the book to work. It's such an integrated story through yeah, all, all, it really all is. of it. To reiterate something we said at, at the beginning of this episode, Goblet of Fire being, you know, at the time the most recent and more grown up is just a lot more complicated. <laughs> yeah. It is. There's a lot great. more going it, on in this book than and it, and in it the gets, other ones. I, I, I've heard a lot of people say that their favorite is Goblet of Fire. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, those are all my notes. Any, there we what go. Are, what are your wrap-up thoughts on this book, David? What does it make you look forward to in the next three? I think what it makes me look forward to is now we're, now we're dealing with the bigger questions. You enjoy all of the intimate personal questions that are being asked but now we're now we're dealing with okay we've moved into injustice we've moved into what makes people evil we've moved into how do you stop evil we've had this you know four books of build up and now here we go yeah we're headed towards the climax we can kind of see what the climax is going to be it's been you know foreshadowed again and again but now it's like okay mm-hmm. where is this going to lead I really enjoyed this book. I think it's so clever and so smart and so it's like a mystery. This one, like, I guess they're all kind of mysteries, but this one felt the most mysterious throughout yeah. reading it. Or, or like I kind I, I knew the story because I'd seen the movie before I read the book, but I can imagine reading this book for the first time as being like, whoa, this is what is going on. You well, know? this is the first, like, I really do see this as the first world building book. Yeah. Versus um, now we have the Harry Potter world. And of course, it's been referred to and assumed that we've talked about it before. But now we're getting some meat on the bones of this world. We've got we've had a skeleton, for sure. not even quite a skeleton. We've had rumors of yeah. a world. The first two books are very like Hogwarts internal. Yeah. And then the third one gives us Azkaban and the Dementors, which are again exactly. important in this in this book but much more expanded to the ministry and the media and the more the adult world is much more present in this one, the Quidditch world cup, like we talked about. So yeah, I just, I loved the next level that it brought to Harry's world. And then to us reading it of the general Harry Potter world. 
uh, it was perfectly crafted. And then another thing I just loved, we talked about it a bunch, was um, especially Harry and Hermione growing into uh, their more sophisticated ethical relationships to the world. The ethics of this are a little bit more sophisticated and complicated and are reminiscent of growing up and, and new information having to inform your yeah. moral Things aren't outlook of black the and white. They're becoming more complex. Yeah. So I enjoyed that. Awesome. Well, this is a great episode. We will uh, be back soon with uh, not not Order of Phoenix quite yet, but that'll be on the pike. But um, David, you have started a new podcast. Do you want to tell the listeners about that one? Yeah. So I've got a another podcast called The Canadian Story, which is the tagline is what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. And it's a reflection on you know, Canadian values, Canadian nationalism, Canadian uh, issues. We have a couple of podcasts on residential schools, uh, podcast episodes. Uh, and I think fundamentally, it's just trying to craft Canadian identity that's a little bit deeper than, you know, we're really nice and we like hockey. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things. And perhaps a little bit uh, deeper than the, you see in the news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Yeah. That's great. I've listened to a number of episodes and it's a uh, it's great cuz it's also you and our other cousin Zach. Exactly, who's been on your other podcast. Yes, wow, <laughs> good segue. <laughs> to um yeah, I I started another podcast called The Liberal Soul. The tagline being I'm interested in talking to people about their interests and passions, talking about some of my own and uh exploring famous works in liberal philosophy to get at the exploratory mindset of what does bring existential meaning to people's lives when left to their own devices. Because I think that is one of the ways out of the quagmire of nihilism. Maybe the only way, actually. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, check out that one if you're, that sounds interesting to you. So anyway, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Thank you for listening, everyone. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And uh, may the force be with you. <laughs> and also with you. <laughs>